Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Harry Kunzru, whose latest novel is White Tears. This is the fifth novel. Most recent was Gods Without Men, also My Revolutions, Transmission, and The Impressionist. This book, White Tears, begins as kind of the story of a poor kid and his rich friend, almost like Brideshead Revisited, and then it turns into something else. So let's go back a little. Okay, you finished Gods Without Men. You were wanting to write something else. I know that you were listening to the blues while you were writing Gods Without Men. So what started White Tears? Well, I could tell various origin stories, but I think the one that is really significant is a few years ago I helped a friend drive a car from New York to West Texas and we drove through Mississippi and stopped in various small towns and one of which was Clarksdale, Mississippi, obviously very famous as a place associated with the blues and we were there on a weekday lunchtime, maybe a Tuesday or Wednesday lunchtime at a time when you'd expect the downtown to be bustling and to have you know people going about their business and it was completely empty. It was this very hot, sticky day I was standing on a street full of these old, rather beautiful deco shop fronts that, you know, from the time when Cotton was king and Clarksdale was making a lot of money. And I found myself in this empty place, like a stage set. We got in the car and we drove away. But something about that image stayed with me and the feeling that there was a time that has been half forgotten in that place. I mean, to be honest, all the people at Clarksdale were probably in the Walmart at the edge of town. I mean, that's what hollowed out so many of those places. So that's one origin. Another would be when I arrived in the U.S. to live back in 2008, I was here for the election campaign that brought Obama to power. When he was elected, I was really struck by how many commentators in the media immediately said, well, now we're living in a post-racial America. There was a sort of eagerness for that to be true. There was, a, I thought, a rather premature wish to slam the door on the past and to, you know, now we can, you know, we can forget about all that bad stuff that happened right there because we, you know, we've elected a black guy as president. Surely, you know, done, over and done. That seems strange to me. And of course, as we all know, what we didn't get was a post-racial America. We got a very highly polarized nation in which race has become an ever more important factor in, in politics and public life. And one of the things that really struck me about coming here to live, you know, obviously I have my own story with race from the UK. I have an Indian father. So I'm, I'm a child of empire and race played a great factor in you know making me who I am and making my understanding of myself. But I came here and I thought I really understood, you know, about the civil rights struggle, about slavery, about the history of black people in America. And I found that I didn't know. I found that I hadn't understood the degree to which those antagonisms and those unaddressed historical questions, you know, they run through every aspect of life here. They, they make so much toxic. 
You said in an interview that your time in America has been completely dominated by race. I mean, that's what we hear. I would say that. In some ways, it's because people don't talk about class here. You know, when people want to identify themselves, they often hyphenate their identity with, you know, with whichever immigrant group, you know, their ancestors belong to or, you know, the real division here is between black and white, you're white or white and non-white. And I hadn't understood the degree to which some people are still highly invested in maintaining those boundaries. I mean, to, to me, that seems absurd in the modern age, but it's a real thing and it's a real part of people's self-conception. And as I say, I find that that involves a degree of of willful blindness towards a lot of the history of the last couple hundred years. Then you've got these ideas. You've got this town, this empty town in the South, and you want to write about race. Where do you get from there to Seth and the Wallace family? I think I started really hearing some of the lyrics in these blues songs and realizing that there are strains of, say, magic and loss running through them. I mean, there's a haunted quality to a lot of the the blues that came out, especially before the Second World War, the country blues. And I started listening to some of the things they were singing about, you know, Robert, Robert Johnson saying, there's stones in my pathway. That is African footfall magic. That is somebody has cast a curse on him, has put something in his path, and if he steps over it, then bad things will happen to him. You know, the jinx, people talk about being jinxed. You know, that's something that turns up from this West African tradition of magic. In a more general way, it's haunting music. It's music that somehow has an otherworldly, to me, you know, especially listening to old records. When you listen to a 78 or something that's been transferred from a 78, you can never forget how far away in time that is. You're listening to something through a haze of surface noise, of crackle and static. So there's this sense that something is coming to you from far away in time. I mean, I think there's something ghostly about all recording, really. You know, uh, somebody who's not there is suddenly in the room with you. I mean, it's one of the beauties of, of sound recording, one of the joys of, of making radio. I started thinking about recorded music and trying to learn about the tradition of blues and how blues came to be what we know it as today, how the taste for the blues became solidified. Uh, you know, it's become a global taste, you know, in every town in the world, probably, and there's a bar somewhere where somebody is saying, you know, they got up this morning and got down on their knees. Harry Kunzru, you decide on this idea that would begin with a phony blues recording by these two young men. What does the blues stand for? The blues in people's minds stands for a kind of authenticity. If you know, if you hear a blues soundtrack to a beer commercial, it means that we're in the real America. We're doing something real. We're, you know, we're close right. to the earth here. But, of course, authenticity is a very slippery subject, and it's a subject that I've spent a lot of time thinking and, and writing about. I'm always interested in what happens when something authentic isn't that authentic. So the idea of a fake blues record was... It's an amusing idea to me initially, but then it got wrapped up with these other much more sort of serious ideas that we've been talking about. And it came to me that really, if I wanted to try and address the sort of anxieties around race in America, what better way to do that than a ghost story? Ghost stories are always about something that uh, has been repressed, something from the past that has been so prematurely pushed down into the earth and is is kind of making its way back up to the surface, is kind of making its way back up into the present. A ghost story involving a fake record that may or may not be fake, that allowed me to go to all the places that I wanted to go in this story. 
So you knew that it would begin as kind of a straightforward narrative and then suddenly shift? Image Bryce had revisited. I wanted to also talk about class and I wanted to talk about money. At the bottom of all these stories is who gets paid? When will we get paid for the work we've done? It's the line that turns up in all those gospel songs and other places. And I wanted to somehow trace this history, not just in some conversation about, oh, something has been appropriated, some cultural object that belongs right. to someone is in the possession of someone else, but to actually say, you know, there are material stories here. The fortunes get made on the backs of people's labor and who has done the work to make America and who has been paid for that work. So I wanted a story where there's a wealthy family, there's a, a young man from a wealthy family. In a very sort of conscious way, I thought of books like The Great Gatsby, narrated by a sidekick figure, by somebody to whom this is magical and special and who the reader can go along with as they experience the strangeness of a great fortune. And so this character, Seth, who is very much the the, the sidekick to Carter, who is the the driving force in this project of faking the record, and, and he collects blues music. That's how that relationship came about and I wanted somehow to send them spiraling backwards into the past. I thought a great deal about time as I was making the book. In White Tears, Harry Kunzru, at a certain point you switch narrators and it's done in such a way that we deliberately, and this happens more than once so it's conscious, we deliberately have to go back a page and see where we are. These two young guys get contacted by an old collector who says, you know, where did you find this record? And they're very smug and amused, and they say, well, we fooled you, you know, we made this up. And he says, no, 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 you didn't. I haven't heard this record since 1959, but it's real, and you need to come and talk to me because you don't know what you're getting into. This old collector was once a young man, and he was the sidekick to another guy. He was a, a very obsessive and driven and rather unpleasant collector called Chester Bly. So there's an immediate doubling there, and I wanted the sense that you know, you're happily, as the reader, sitting on the shoulder of a, of a young, modern, you know, 25-year-old Seth, and then you're still with a young man who seems in many ways very similar, but suddenly we're in the 50s, and that that process of, of slippage should go on through the book and become more intense and, and become a sort of swirl where... Instead of moving forward in time, I wanted the sense of this character as he's, you know, he's running as fast as he can, but he's always going backwards and backwards and backwards. There's a horror to that, never to be able to, to live your life in a way that makes you feel like you have a future. You know, if you live your life with the sense that everything you do has already been done in some way, I mean, there's a creeping terror to that, and that was very much what I wanted to try and convey in the book. It goes from reality to various stories and more dreamlike and nightmarish as it goes along. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of process. At the beginning, did you have any idea that was going to be the process? That was what I wanted to get to. I started asking myself, well, what does it mean to be haunted by the past? The answer I came up with, that it, it means that you can't move into the future. You can't move on, that somehow, you know, you can't move forward. So you're moving backwards. And so it had to be something to do with tenses as a writer. You know, you had to be slightly screwing with the reader's sense of when something is taking place. And then I 
started to make experiments and started to try and write sentences that would do this. And I got more and more interested in the idea that as Seth's sense of the present day disintegrates and he becomes more wrapped up in this haunting, that somehow all time would be simultaneously present to him. Like he'd be walking down the street one minute, it's 2017, and then maybe it's not. Maybe you get a glimpse of something that's clearly from an earlier era, like he hops on a streetcar and there are no streetcars anymore in New York City, that he could be having this sense of time that was so non-linear in that way. We also experience, too, there's a point they get into in the present day, he and Leone get into her convertible, and there's an eight track. And I'm thinking, is that him? Is that the older collector? Where are we? I do little things like that early on in the book. I have fun with, there's a bar that features in the book, a kind of grubby basement dive bar on 14th Street in New York. And the first time we see the bar, the daytime drinkers in there all having to steal themselves to go outside to smoke because that's the law these days. But the next time he goes into the bar, people are smoking in the bar. And there's a tiny thing. And there's a Marvin Hagler fight on the TV, a fighter from the 1980s. I don't double underline that to say anything. The copy editor wanted to check with me that that was in fact deliberate. As you say, also, they get into a car in the present day and he puts the music in on the eight track. And then a little further on, we're in another car in the 1950s with two similar but not the same people. That fuzziness. It's, it's kind of fun to write and it's fun to, to create that sense of unease in the reader and then kind of really make it pay off later on as you realize that this isn't just, you know, copy editing accidents. Early on, there's a lot of sequences very early on about high-tech electronics. Did you do research on how to create that sort of phony blues song? I asked some musician friends and some music writer friends you know, I wanted it to be as plausible as possible. I mean, it is still a device in a novel, I will say that. But I've been very interested for a long time in our cultural fetish for retro, in all forms, in music, in all sorts of other ways as well. And there is a great love of the patina of the past. And certainly in music recording, there are studios where in order to get a particular sound, you can go and you can use analog equipment, old microphones, old desks, even if you want to, you can record onto tape rather than onto a, a digital recorder. And that's a strange relationship to the present, a kind of wish for a past quality. I wondered what would happen if that fetish led you into something, a more troubling entanglement with the past. That's kind of an overlay to the entire thing. I was thinking of films like Woody Allen's Zelig, where they have created phony footage inserting modern people, but the footage itself, 20 years ago, they would actually take the film and start rubbing it to try to make it look old, but now you could do all of that electronically. You can. You mentioned Zelig. I mean, a film that was important to me in thinking about a lot of this book is actually The Shining. I think you know, giving plot spoilers for The Shining is probably okay, but at the end of The Shining, we find that Jack Nicholson's character has always been in the hotel. And we see that because we see him inserted into a, a, an old photograph, a 1920s photograph of a party, and there he is in the middle of this situation. And, and we sort of understand this man who's brought his family to be the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel has in some way been dragged backwards into the evil past of this place. 
There's something else which is a subtext as you were talking, and I kept thinking of the current Trump era in which the retro scenes toward the end of the book are becoming more and more real for all of us, not just African-Americans. The beating scenes, which are two parallel scenes that kind of merge. I was writing this book during the, you know, and after the protests in Ferguson and as people really began to, to focus on the relationship between black Americans and, and the police and what your expectations of an encounter with authority are in this country, depending on your skin color. A lot of white Americans really didn't understand before 2014, 2015, quite how seriously different those experiences were, you know, that you could not expect civility, you could perhaps expect violence based on your skin color. I mean, that's still something that will anger people to hear. I mean, people very much don't want to accept that there's any institutional racism and police forces in this country. You know, I thought back to what things were like if you're a young black man in Mississippi in 1929, your rights are, are pretty much nil and techniques of policing that were started in slavery days, really techniques of social control that started then and went all the way through the reconstruction and the kind of clawing back of the various rights that uh, newly freed slaves had got during that period, the institution of Jim Crow in, in the South. I mean, it seems to me there's a clear historical continuity between then and the present day. And now Everybody's nervous about their civil rights because we have a, a new government that has declared that it considers those rights privileges. And even for people who are not accustomed to having their rights violated, there are questions beginning to come up. And so I think we're at a stage where this whole question of authority and compliance with authority and your rights to your personhood, your rights to keep something away from the state are all in play. There's a sequence toward the end. I'm skipping around, but I mean, it's not really spoiler-ish, where Seth has been beaten up by the cops, and it's because he's poor. And that brings in the class idea. There's also not quite as bad as, say, if you were black. I think I write something like, you know, if if you're poor, what happened to you hasn't happened. It's It's almost like your suffering has less reality to the world at large than the suffering of a wealthy or important person and i you know this is the experience of being powerless is the fact that you can say a bad thing was done to me and somehow people don't hear that people don't hear you, you feel like you're less substantial that you can cry out and you won't be heard and that is a nightmarish situation and i make that more literal in in the novel i turn up the the contrast on that thought in it, it becomes a sort of hallucinatory nightmarish thing where you know the, the sort of thing that happens in a nightmare where you're screaming and screaming and you're banging on the glass and and they don't hear you you know i think that's quite a real experience you know, that's how it is to be marginalized in society the cultural appropriation as a person who can be seen leads to the invisibility of that which he's appropriated by the end of the book the question of who owns culture is, once again, we're hotly debating it at the moment. There are several cases where fingers are being pointed, white creatives for their use of imagery or sounds from African-American cultural experience. And 
One of the reasons I got very interested in the blues is because there's an ambiguity to to this story. I mean, I have a problem with the idea that that there are racial essences and that certain things belong to one group and, and are absolutely you know taboo to another group. You have to acknowledge the material history of appropriation and the fact that people didn't get paid for work that they did. You know, I mean, especially in in music, we can list off everything from you know. Charlie Parker to Elvis being credited as the inventor of rock and roll to all sorts of you know British rock bands stealing blues songs and putting their names on them. Those things are very real. But at the same time in the history of the blues, this was considered disposable culture and it was only really rescued by the love and attention of a kind of coterie of white collectors in the years after the Second World War. So it's not a simple story of evil white people grabbing onto something that wasn't theirs. There was a sort of a love and a work of rescue and an intellectual engagement that actually salvaged figures like Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson, who are now acknowledged as as pillars of American culture, some of the most important American creatives of, of all time. But what does it mean to collect? What is it to be a collector? You know, what, you know, do you, you know, are you there with your hoard? Are you there uh, trying to control something, or is it just an act of love? And and these things, one one can slide into the other. What's the difference between loving something and owning something? And I think these are all important questions for the present day that you can look at through this extraordinary history of of the creation and the reception of the blues. So where do you place someone like John Mayall? Here I am with my British accent talking about the blues and one of the key moments in the reception of the blues is when it crosses the Atlantic and and uh, a bunch of skinny British white musicians in the early 60s start listening to these blues and R&B records and thinking, that sounds great, I want to see if I can play that. And the Stones and Zeppelin and John Mayall's Blues Breakers and the Yardbirds and all these, all these groups of, you know, by and large even sort of London musicians take the blues, they heavy it up a bit, and then they sell it back across the Atlantic and people go crazy for it. And it's this strange journey from being a rural southern art form to something that is is associated with, you know, British guys who are talking like this. Do they have the right to do that? Artists have the right to take from wherever they want. Do they give credit where credit is due? Not always. I mean, and, and indeed, as we know, quite a lot of lawsuits have been settled out of court by some of these big bands to people that they thought were dead and gone and weren't going to be able to defend their creative legacy. So it is interesting that the blues paradigmatically black rural art form transmutes into rock and roll. And when we think of rock and roll, we think of it as white guys. Now it's become a a, a white orientated art form. You get to the point where by the 70s, the rock station is promoting a disco sucks event and burning disco records, burning black soul records in a stadium. And that's a very strange journey from you know the sound of a, a Mississippi blues guitar becoming you know a baying crowd of white rock fans burning disco records when you were growing up in the 70s in London you grew up in a, a white neighborhood and you were basically the only non-white person there what were you listening to soul I'm from Essex which is to London what let's say Jersey is to New York there was a very deep tradition of listening to black soul music I mean, there are various reasons for that. But it was also simultaneously a recruiting ground for the far right. It was a very strange situation when some of the racist people you can ever imagine were sort of grooving out to jazz funk records. 
<laughs> it was slightly surreal. And later on, you know, I look back and I thought how odd that was. So I kind of grew up with black culture without black people. And so there was a strangeness to that, that there was this stuff that I love. You know, I got to a sort of record buying age in about 1981, 1982. And one of the first things I got was The Message by Grandmaster Flash, early hip hop record. You know, I came from like another planet. It was another world that wasn't like where I was growing up in the London suburbs. And funny things happened. There were pirate radio stations which would play a lot of import records. And I remember one time I heard this soulful sounding artist called Madonna. And we all assumed she was black at first. You have these sort of strange misapprehensions and crossings. Nobody in the South Bronx ever thought that there would be a bunch of suburban white kids getting a bit of linoleum and trying to spin on their heads, you know, <laughs> trying to do breakdancing. But that was going on. Cut to sort of slightly later on, and I went to university, and I'm with all these kind of quite upper-class young men who enjoy dub reggae. You know, the old Etonian reggae fan was a definite sort of cultural type at that point. But again, where are the people who made this? And what is your relationship to this often quite slightly old, slightly outdated black music? And, you know, you start to realize certain things about why certain people are present in your privileged space and why they're not. You know, maybe we want the music, but we don't actually want the people who made the music. And that. I suppose that we'd call that another origin story for this novel as well. What attracted you and when to these early blues singers? Because uh, I read that Lead Belly is the kind of prototype for Charlie Shaw. I don't know where they got that from. Lead Belly isn't the prototype for Charlie Shaw. But my first, I think the first time I probably heard this kind of music was when I was 18 or 19. And I got, I got two records. I got a Chess Records compilation that was all sort of post-war Chicago electric blues, which I loved. I thought that was all great. Etta James, Robert Nighthawk, all these kind of people. And I got uh, Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues, which was a, a, a compilation of, of recordings that had been made in the 30s on, on 78. And I didn't like that because it was crackly and old and slightly kind of skewed and didn't have a dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum forward motion to it. So that didn't get played very much. And then much, much later, I got hold of something called Harry Smith's Anthology of American Folk Music. And Harry Smith was a sort of 1950s bohemian character in, in New York who was a, an artist and a collector of all sorts of things, collected textiles and made experimental films. But one of the things he collected was 78 records, and he persuaded Mo Ash, who owned Folkways Records, to allow him to put out a compilation of his collection. And he wrote these strange, rather mystical liner notes claiming that this was a kind of cosmic American music that was, you know, the key to understanding, you know, many, many occult things within these songs. And it's not just blues music, there's fiddle music, there's Appalachian music, all sorts of different styles are on there. But Mississippi John Hurt is on there, and, and I heard him singing and was touched to the core. I mean, an incredibly beautiful performance of uh, John Henry and started listening to more. I mean, I, I wanted to find out more about some of the singers that were on these. And so, and then actually, as I didn't know it at that time, I was taking a journey that all sorts of people had been on before me and that that Harry Smith anthology had been the basis for the repertoire of a lot of folkies in Greenwich Village in the 60s folk revival. Dylan and Joan Byers and all sorts of people had had sung these songs. 
And so, yeah, before I knew it, I was, you know, referring to things by catalogue numbers and, and, you know, scouring through websites maintained by obsessive Germans looking for what was on the on the flip side of a particular 78. And that's when you uncovered something called the Blues Mafia? Yeah, the Blues Mafia is a, a coterie of collectors in New York City who congealed around a man called James McCune, whose biography I have liberally dipped into in order to, to make the character of Chester Bly in my novel. McCune was a very eccentric loner who had been a jazz collector. Most of these guys had firstly been interested in New Orleans jazz of the, of the 20s and you know King Oliver and, and uh, Jelly Roll Morton and these kind of people. He heard Charlie Patton record and to declared that this was the true, authentic kind of soul of American music. And at a time when there was pretty much, there was no real written information about any of these performers, and nobody cared about them very much at that time, you know, and black culture had moved on at that, you know, the time we're talking about, it was this Chicago electric post-war sound that was beginning to sort of birth R&B and the, and the very sort of first stirrings of rock and roll. This was old-fashioned music. This was not of interest to anybody. And these guys started collecting and they started to try and find out what they could about the singers. And some of them did this extraordinary thing which they call canvassing, which is they would take road trips down to the south and they would go door to door looking for old records. And they would find them. And people had no idea that most of this material existed because it had been recorded by no account little labels that weren't keeping archives and weren't you know it wasn't coming to the attention of critics there was no such thing as a blues critic and so they began this this sort of work of archiving and rescuing and finding out who was who and that's that sort of went on for years doing up until the point when people started to die off and it became much harder and the supply of unfound records became smaller although even today occasionally a new record will turn up well, there are probably grails. People hear about something and then they go looking. There is a small and obsessive band of collectors of 78s who are, you know, often extremely driven people who are desperate for that one thing that, you know, hasn't yet surfaced. I mean, this in the book, I, I mention Willie Brown, who's a Mississippi bluesman, who is a you know, contemporary of, of some of these other famous guys, Johnson and, and Patton and so on. And to our knowledge, he recorded six sides. Those three discs, two of which have turned up, one of which has never been found. And so there is the missing Willie Brown record that is, I suppose, if you had to point to a holy grail of blues collectors, that would be it. Years ago, I spent a lot of time with book collectors. And before collecting books became something that reached the mainstream, but there was a point where it did not. And you know, people would go to garage sales and search for these obscure books or pulp magazines. I interviewed a mystery writer not too long ago named Bill Pronzini, who's an old friend of mine. He's got shelves of books at his house with names of noir writers I've never heard of. Yeah. It's sort of the same thing. There's always more depth to, to any area than you can possibly imagine. You know, you think you've heard everything or at least heard of everything and and you realize that you haven't at all i mean these days ebay has provided a sort of efficient market for all sorts of things you know i mean the time before ebay you could still find your holy grail and pay a dollar for it but by and large these days people can know what they have and although it's easier to get something it's very it's very much rarer to find a bargain 
for books, for instance, which I know, you can get online and there are sites that will tell you what certain books are worth or, are worth or, or, or go or for what it. they're asking yeah, yeah. for. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, A books and places like that, yeah. I went to IMDb. None of your books have become films. Is there anything in the works? Straight answer, no, not a thing. I, you know, I have hopes. I mean, I, I think I could say it's a sort of badge of honor that I'm managing to write fiction that's not that disguised film bait. <laughs> <laughs> there is something I saw that you're in a film called Almost in Love, a cameo as yourself is... Yeah, so a, a friend of mine is a director, makes kind of relatively low-budget indie movies, and this is a feature-length film in two unbroken shots, and each of which is at a party. And so the camera roams around this party, and he wanted various people who like to talk and would be good at being party guests on camera, and I am one of those people. <laughs> Are you a musician at all? Oh, I wish I was. I can play a little piano, but but not. I would never do that in public. So I'm a very pure fan. I'm in awe of musicians, and I'm the one who's there applauding their creativity. This book is kind of a ghost story, previous one sort of magic realism. Did you grow up reading science fiction fantasy? Yes, I've read nothing else between the ages of about 12 and about 15, I think it was, maybe slightly earlier than 12, there was a period of my life where I remember that my, later on actually, my parents confessed that they'd been to see the principal of my school in order to ask whether you know they should be worried about my reading habits, the fact that I was only reading in this, this fantastical material, and very sensibly the teacher said, you know, he's reading what more do you want you know he'll he'll come to other stuff eventually and and I did you know lately I've begun to go back to some of these books that I read as a teenager with very mixed results I have to say some of them stand up but I have to say most of them don't what books in particular I'd say something that really does stand up as Ursula Le Guin which I loved as a 12 year old the Earthsea trilogy I reread recently and is a very very stylistically beautiful book I loved the Dune books. I I love obviously Lord of the Rings, like everybody. And there's a lot of sort of harder science fiction things like Alfred Bester that I I enjoyed. You know, later on, you know, there were people like William Gibson, who uh, you know I got to as a sort of teenager and uh, and actually as a student as well, because he seemed to be talking about. I mean, he seemed to have a kind of window on the development of of the world, kind of almost as it was happening. I mean, Michael Moorcock would be another person who's a British fantasy writer, very prolific, especially in the 60s and 70s. And he's, you know, these days he's, I'm proud to say that he's a friend of mine. I got to meet some of these heroes of mine as, a, as an adult. There was a collection, Treasury of Great Science Fiction, edited by Anthony Boucher, who actually had a show on opera on KPFA in the 50s. And one of the stories that got me hooked at the age of 15 was The Star's My Destination by Alfred Bester. Great book. What doesn't hold up? There's a lot of stuff to where the, just the quality of the writing is not good. You read past the first of the Dune books and you're in the toilet, really, with Frank Herbert. But you're always hopeful that the glorious storytelling that you remember as a kid, which is what propelled you through these books, is actually backed up by prose that doesn't make you want to smack yourself in the face. But very often, man, these are books that were written under pressure and they're kind of commercial propositions. I mean... I mean, there are books that do stand up. You know, I remember Canticle for Leibovitz by Walter Miller is a favorite of mine. Um, 
very underrated writer called Gene Wolfe, who I think should be more known outside science fiction and fantasy circles, The Earth of the New Sun. Those books were favourites of mine as well. The premise is so great, you know, the, the school of torturers sends their, you know, new graduate out to be the executioner in a in a, a country town and you follow him out there. And that just that strange sort of moral reversal is one of the the great things that science fiction and fantasy can do. You know, there's a big idea that, that it can kind of convey. Well, what's interesting about your books is that there is that element there and yet you never from the beginning were marketed as a genre writer. No, I suppose not. And all I can do is sort of hold my heads up. I mean, you know, I have, I have literary values. I suppose I like to write a nicely turned sentence, and and I don't think my stuff fits in easily into any particular genre niche. But I'm not alone amongst people who are considered literary writers in caring a lot about this supposedly genre only stuff. I mean, someone like David Mitchell has you know, been very open about his inheritance from genre stuff. And then conversely, there are genre writers like China Mievel who are beginning to be understood as literary writers. So, I mean, I think it's partly a generational thing where the high culture, low culture thing is less uh, solidly policed. Subgenres. I mean, I, I remember yeah. going to the, the YA section of a bookstore recently and, and, you know, and the kind of ways you can slice and dice YA vampire fantasy you know is it, it's extraordinary the kind of proliferation of genre terms a lot of that has to do also with an entire generation that grew up on star wars and lord of the rings yeah and then the generation after that orientates their entire understanding of the world through harry potter i mean the potter kids are grown-ups now i'm meeting them in mfa teaching situations <laughs> harry kunz this book is out are you working on your next i am i don't want to say too much about it, just as in order not to jinx it, I suppose. But I'm working on something set in Berlin. I spent six months in Berlin last year, and there's a city with a lot of layers to it. Final question. As someone of part Indian, part English, when you come to America now in the post-Trump years, have you experienced anything coming in, or was it easy for you to get in and out? I had a period after 9-11 when, you know, I had a lot of dealings with security at the airport. And I think now they must have my a file on me that shows that I've been coming in and out for years without incident. And so, you know, these days, touch wood, I, I have a, a pretty straightforward time at the airport. And long may that continue. <laughs> to listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com. Or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>